John Golia. I'm Greg Fife. And I'm Todd Curtis. And we are the Flight Safety Detectives. Between us, we have over a century of aviation accident investigation and safety experience to draw on as we discuss issues that affect all of us. So we are qualified to share our perspectives on accidents and incidents and what can be learned from them for the future. We're proud to say that we have two sponsors that really relate to the topic of aviation safety. The Professional Aviation Maintenance Association, or PAMA, and Avemco Insurance. Later on in the show, we'll tell you how you can get a 5% discount on your insurance just for listening to the show. We don't just dissect the official reports. In every episode, we identify safety issues and take the mystery out of accident investigations. So maybe pilots in their planes can have safer flights ahead. Well, Todd, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. Beautiful day here. And I was flying, but only on a simulator. Tomorrow will be a different story. No, you wouldn't have been flying if you were still here. I heard. It's kind of wet on the East Coast right now. Yeah, it's really been raining a lot the last couple of days. They're filling up all the rivers and all the reservoirs. Unlike unlike your your uh, your childhood home in Texas, yeah, it's a little bit brown this time of year, especially hot this uh, particular decade. Yeah, a lot of a lot of water issues. Well, instead of doing an accident this week, we're going to talk about a current event because it has wide ranging implications. And uh, I'll let you open it and talk well, about. Quite uh, simply, this was an event which got quite a bit of press coverage. There was a flight, Horizon Airline flight out of Everett, Washington, uh, heading down south toward uh, San Francisco, I believe it was. And they had a pilot from a partner airline flying in the jump seat. This happened to be a pilot who flew with um, Alaska Airlines. And it's common practice for pilots in uniform to ride jump seat, not just on airlines that they work for, but any airline. And things were going well. Shortly into the flight, though, things went on a very, uh, how should I say it, very odd turn. The uh, pilot in the jump seat attempted to uh, shut the engines down on the aircraft by pulling out the fire handles, which could trigger a uh, sequence of events, including cutting off fuel to the engine, shutting the engine down, and even discharging fire retardant into the engine. The two flying um, pilots were able to subdue this person before anything was done to the airplane. He was taken to the back of the airplane. They diverted to Portland, and this pilot was arrested. What really caught the media's attention was the early reports that this pilot had apparently, among other things, had not slept for 40 hours, had been going through some sort of a mental health crisis, and had taken a dose or two or maybe three of magic mushrooms. Full disclosure, I know mushrooms can be hallucinogenic. Magic mushrooms are hallucinogenic to some level. I really don't know how that works, except that this sort of thing, if nothing else was going on in this person's life, taking drugs that are not allowed by the U.S. government is something that no pilot can do. So I'm not sure what was going on, but allegedly he had tried to 
disable the aircraft. Allegedly, he had taken drugs, which would have disqualified him from flying as a, as a airline pilot. And this is being dealt with on a law enforcement level, not as an accident or an incident. And this is where, John, you can give us some insight as to why the NTSB would not be involved in something that could have ended in a catastrophe. Well, in the, in the first instance, the NTSB, it's not an accident. So it's a crime. What he did was a crime. So uh, it's an FBI TSA uh, investigation. Not that they might not uh, request the NTSB's help because of fire handle, getting a good understanding of what that means and what it does uh, is really not in the normal purview of, the, of either the test. Uh, uh, TSA or the FBI. So as it gets closer to a court case, or as they start building their case against this individual, uh, they'll probably ask the NTSB for some help in uh, understanding that system, educating their lawyers, essentially, uh, so that they can describe it to the court. Now, so, typically, when it comes to this a criminal act or an act of uh some deliberate action by a state-sponsored or sub-state-sponsored group, terrorist group, what have you. In the U.S., this is not something that's investigated and then with the report released to the public. 9-11 was um, a uh, exception to this rule. There was quite a few reports released, but not a traditional what happened to the aircraft during this event. Going back in time to 1988, I believe it was, with uh, over Lockerbie, Scotland, there was a 747 Pan Am aircraft had a bomb on board, the bomb exploded, everyone on board was killed, as well as several people on the ground. The British government had a very extensive, very detailed analysis of this event, released that to the public. If we go back uh, to a different direction, to France in 2015, there was a case where a pilot, the uh, first officer, locked out the captain from the cockpit, then deliberately threw an a flew an A320 into the ground, killing everyone on board. That had a fairly extensive analysis and investigation by the French authorities, and I believe there was quite a bit released on that. And a more obscure one, this was back, I believe, in the early 2000s. This was in Namibia. There was an aircraft overflying Namibia. One of the captain, I think, in this case, locked out the first officer, crashed the aircraft. And the government of Namibia had a fairly detailed report about this. So... But what happens in an event like this depends on the country. The U.S. pretty much universally is not going to have a report. Now, one of the, the other things that we wanted to talk about was the fact that you had someone who was not a flying member of that, was not a, a flight crew member, rather, for that particular flight, who's allowed to ride in the cockpit. Post 9-11, those rules have been tightened up greatly. Pre-9-11, rules are different. And John, you were talking off camera about how relatively easy it was for you as an NTSB board member to ride jump seat in the cockpit back in the day. Right. And even as an employee for the airline that I worked for, I flew in the cockpit and very uh, quite often. Uh, so if you go back 25 years, it was pretty, pretty uh, not wide open, but had a pretty broad uh, number of people who could fly in the cockpit. And my own story there, which is a short one, I happen to be in the U.S. was fairly strict for someone who is not an insider like yourself. But in Canada, I was on an internal Canadian flight. I identified myself as a, a Boeing safety engineer. 
struck up a conversation, and they invited me to sit in the uh, jump seat in the cockpit, and I got a chance to fly the Ottawa on an A320, and uh, that would not have happened in the U.S. even back in the 1990s. I, it was tight. It was. I used to bring people up in flight when I was a kid, a hundred years ago. If Greg was here, I'd have to make that clear because he picked right up on it. But when I was a kid, I, I was in the cockpit many, many times. But it, they started tightening it up in the 70s, I believe. And uh, it's been slowly tightening and tightening. After 9-11, TSA really wanted to tighten it up and only allow the, the flying crew members in the cockpit. You know, And of course, if there was a a check ride or something like that, that those people were authorized. But basically what we, what they were trying to uh, put a handle on, get a handle on, was the uh, commuting pilots that, that fly in a cockpit all the time uh, to get from point to point. Uh, most pilots, many pilots, not most, many pilots don't live in the city in which they fly out of. So they use the, the jump seat approvals to uh, to fly from their home location to wherever they're picking up their flight for. And depending so, on the airline, depending on that pilot situation, they could literally fly from one side of the country to the other in order to go to, go to work. And uh, some of you may remember the 2009 crash in near Buffalo, where the first officer had been living on the West Coast, had commuted basically overnight, was even sleeping in a, in a crew rest uh, area halfway across the country in order to get to her job. And one of the arguments is this sort of thing is adding to fatigue and this shouldn't be allowed. Well, the reality is the airline business is such where the opportunity may be in one place, the pilot may be in another. And with rare exceptions, um, they're not being paid enough or being offered moving uh, expenses and such to move themselves and sometimes their families. So the choice is you either commute fairly long distances, hundreds of miles, several hours, or you don't have the job. And for most pilots who are in that position, they're not, they don't have the luxury of saying no. They have to get there by any means necessary. Yes, that some some uh, take advantage of it. I know of one pilot who lived in Paris and commuted from Paris uh, to the United States to pick up his trips. And I know for all the years that I worked at Logan Airport, there were several uh, apartments not too far from the airport that we call them crash pads where six, eight, ten pilots would chip in to get an apartment because usually there was only two or three in town at the same time to pick up a trip. So they they uh, they just had a place, a crash pad, a place to go sleep before their flights. So there's been, all, like you said, all sorts of arrangements made uh, to avoid moving into a city and partially because most people don't realize that some of these pilot jobs are unstable. You know, you could have you could pick up a a, a, a trip out of Boston, and that could be a your bits uh, domicile, uh, and then the schedule changes drastically, and they're telling you no, you're going to be in in New York or you're going to be in in uh, Chicago next. So they're always reluctant to uh, put down their roots until they really get a bunch of seniority. So it's a it's an ongoing problem. It's going to be from the from those of us on the outside. It's going to be interesting to watch what the government reaction is to all of this, if there is a reaction. 
you know, because, you know, like, like you said earlier, the TSA really wanted to tighten that up. And to some extent, they did. If there's seats available on the airplane, then the, the jump seat pilot who was using it to commute is, is oftentimes uh, required or told to take a seat in the cabin. But uh, this year, uh, that's got to be a problem because there are no seats in the cabin. I just had uh, just on Saturday of this week, the first time that I had like five empty seats on an airplane. I, I, usually they're chock a box full. So it's just, it's just, uh, you know, they had to cut 10%. The airlines, the FAA required them to cut 10% of their flights, which is going to expire in a couple of days. It's going to, I'm going to see, anxious to see what they do about that. But uh, cutting 10% of their flights at a period of time when they were already had the majority of them were full, uh, hurt, hurt me. I have, I've had trouble almost every week trying to find seats on airplanes. I've had to get creative with my routing to get around sometimes, including this week, including tomorrow. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what what the fallout for this is. And it could be severe for pilots. Now, this reminded me when I first heard of this, of an event that happened almost 30 years ago. It was 1994. It was involving FedEx which had a policy, and I believe still does to some extent, not only pilots, but other employees can ride, not necessarily in the cockpit, but in a cabin-type area on some of their aircraft. 1994, there was a pilot who was going through some issues. Apparently, he was about to go to a disciplinary hearing because of some falsification of his uh, flight experience. And he hashed the plan to um, arrange for a lot of insurance and whatnot to go to his family and to commandeer the aircraft and deliberately crash it out in the Pacific Ocean. This was taking out of, out of, taking off out of Memphis, going to San Jose. His plan was to, shortly after takeoff, take over the aircraft. Well, there are three people in the cabin. This is a DC-10, uh, not the MD-10 version, but the earlier version. He had to fight off three pilots in the cockpit, and they were able to hold him off. Everyone on board was seriously injured. In fact, the three flight crew members were so seriously injured they never flew again as commercial pilots. And this was uh, one where the airplane landed, everybody survived. A couple of years later, I happened to be at an air show up in Canada, and there was a FedEx aircraft and a crew there on display. And I walked up in the cockpit, introduced myself, and asked them, hey, what about this event that happened a couple of years ago? Has FedEx changed their rules about who can ride in the aircraft? They said, no. This was an event where the airplane almost crashed, people seriously injured, there was no real move on the part of the federal government to change the policies that airlines had. Now, will it happen with this event? The person in the cockpit, in the jump seat, was another airline pilot. Heavily vetted kind of person. There's a huge number of things that a pilot has to do to become an airline pilot, including being medically evaluated every six months. And here's where one of the weaknesses occur. When it comes to a pilot medical exam, which I just went through for a third class license just to fly my Cessna, you have to self-report any medical conditions that could be an issue. What prescriptions are you taking? What surgeries have you had? That sort of thing. If you don't self-disclose, there's basically no way for either that medical examiner or for your company to dig into your medical records because of the medical privacy laws that exist here and elsewhere. Getting back to that uh, French event I told you about uh, with German Wings Airlines, that pilot 
who crashed the airplane had actually trained in the U.S. So uh, he was under the same sort of rules with, with, with respect to disclosing things. He didn't disclose his condition or what he was taking. And it was similar with the European authorities. Bottom line, if a pilot doesn't self-report something that could end their career or end their job, uh, it's very difficult for the airline to find out about it. So this pilot from last week who allegedly tried to turn off the engines, did this person have an ongoing medical issue or mental health issue that should have been reported legally? And if so, what recourse does the FAA have to force someone to divulge private medical information? Now, on the magic mushroom side, that's a whole different issue. There's all sorts of drugs out there where if you take them, not only are you not allowed to fly, they could take away your certifications. And certainly when this person allegedly did this, that could have been a career ender right there. It should have been. You know, in that whole medical uh, confidentiality piece, you know, they passed that law 20 years ago, roughly, maybe a little more. And uh, we've had a bunch of unintended consequences from that. So we just talked about, you just talked about the, the pilots and their medical and the disclosures. Uh, but we also had a shooting here in the East Coast, up in Maine, and this guy has been in and out of uh, mental hospitals recently, and he was still able to buy a firearm. Uh, so that, you know, if that law, they need to find a way to adjust it somehow so that doctors uh, can report what's going on without fear of being sued out of, their, out of uh, financial stability. So it, it really is a problem for society. And it's too bad because that otherwise is a good law. You know, I, I wouldn't want my uh, medical issues, which fortunately I don't have any right now, but I wouldn't want all that stuff disclosed and readily available. You know, with the internet today, where you just plug into the hospital and have them download everything you have. So uh, it's, a, it's a real problem we're going to have. Uh, the, issue, the issue, though, with flight crew members uh, is that it is a very specific kind of career that one has, one that has very strict requirements for the person's health for them to do their job. And it's not like most other jobs where you can take medical leave for a week or even several months. You can come back on the job. And there might be a little bit of a difficulty slotting you into your former position, but you're not going to be disqualified for the rest of your career for taking time off for certain conditions, whereas as a pilot, there are certain conditions where if you take time off, it's very likely that airline won't have you again. And it's very likely you find it very difficult to find any airline to take you. Right. Right. Nobody will want you then. Right. So that that in, that in itself leads pilots to hide any conditions that they have. And, you know, it may not be the condition they have may not be one that's going to cause them a lot of grief, but they're not willing to take the chance. So they just hide everything. And speaking of, you know, career consequences, we've talked on this show uh, several times before about people coming up in the business as flight crew members who have to dedicate years of their lives up to six figures and above of their own money in order to put themselves in a position to be in this career. And there are any number of things, including a DUI, if you get pulled over for drunk driving, which could throw all that out the window. So, uh, 
you know, I'm not excusing any of this, but I am saying there's a huge incentive to either A, be careful and not run afoul of the regulations, or B, if you do run afoul of the regulations, you might be tempted to not discuss it or lie about it in order to keep your career. And I'm not saying it's a good thing to do that. I don't think uh, someone who has these kinds of disqualifying conditions should fly, especially as someone responsible for an airliner. But human nature being what it is, if you're on the hook for $100,000 and checking a box flushes that all down the toilet and you don't have $100,000 to spare, what are you going to do? And I think that there should be strict rules, but there should be more explicit leeway up front so that people who do have issues would have a better chance of not having their careers go down the drain should they admit it. Yeah, at least the threshold may maybe needs to be adjusted a little higher. So if you do have problems, uh, you can get them addressed and up to a certain point. Then if the doctor believes that the, the, the issues that you have are, are too severe, then they will put curtail your, your flying position. It, it's a very, very, very difficult subject to deal with. It's, uh, I'm, I'm glad I don't have to make those decisions. Well, we make, we make uh, much easier decisions, which uh, segues us into my next to last word, because one of the things we discussed earlier is that in the U.S., deliberate actions, criminal actions, aren't subject to full reporting in a nice report, such as what the NTSB does for major accidents. But there are ways around that. And we mentioned today one of the events, the 1994 FedEx event, I am going to list as resources in this show several documents that I found, uh, some of which were the Freedom of Information Act um, releases that someone made of the FBI. And the FBI had dozens and dozens of pages that had specific information about this event. So you can rely on the various media reports and even a book that was written on this event. I'm the kind of person who likes to go as close to the original source of the data as possible. So even with this event that happened here, there might be things that are out there that are coming directly from the US government, either through a Freedom of Information Act or a Department of Justice press release. So whatever you may think about what happened or what didn't happen, or what this pilot did or didn't do, my recommendation, go to the source as much as possible. And it might be very difficult for a while, but eventually this is gonna end up in court. And in uh, you know court records, you can attend the court. The records may be sealed, but people can sit in the courtroom. It's not going to be a closed process, and you can sit in the in the in the room and talk about it and and write about it. So we'll probably see uh, some activity in that area because this is such a hot um, subject for the print press, especially. You know, it sells the the saying is it sells papers, and and you know just looking at the sources that you dug up, the news sources that you dug up, it's obvious that that they were keeping this thing alive. Other thing, other similar accidents alive, and selling a lot of papers off it. So, hold on, folks, we got to wait and see what where this goes. But there's there's a, it's like an octopus. There's a lot of different ways that they. This can go and a lot of different impacts that, that uh, unintended consequences probably. 
And with that, Todd, was that your last word? You that was my that was my next to last word, and the, the rest is up to you. Okay, well, as usual, you know, I, my frustration level still grows as I go through accidents after accident and see so many problems around the originating flight. Pre-flights that were not done. You know, you should you should do a pre-flight before you leave the hotel or the house. Redo it again at the airport. Do a very thorough walk around of the airplane. And I, I see, you know, I see checklists, the commercial checklists are put off for airplanes. And the, the detail is check the tail, check the wings. No detail. The airplanes, now I know it's hard to, to do all that. Right, but somebody should be doing that with a detailed inspection. What to look at? Where are the traps? You know, and when you open a panel, what should I be looking for when I open the panel? You know, I know what I'm looking at as a mechanic. I'll go around and, and look at all the connections and looking for obvious leaks. But when I talk to pilots, they don't know what they're looking at. They just go in and look at the airplane and keep on going. So, and I try to help all the pilots I can if they're willing to, to listen and, and what to look for. But that pre-flight is so, so very, very important. And then the other one I can't help them with, and that's the mid-airs or near mid-airs that we're having. They're, they're happening more frequently. And, and some, some of the pilots I talk to say they had an experience, but it's not reported anywhere. VFR flights, they had somebody that was flying where they shouldn't be, somebody that came too close. Right? So those are all happening. You've got to you got to be a professional today. you got to have your head on a swingle, swivel when you get in the air. You've got to pay attention. Uh, I mean, it's, it's a full-time job, pilot. Full-time job. You know, even, you know, we talk about recreational flying. That's not, it's not a relaxing position for a pilot. He's got to, he's got to stay on his game to keep himself and his passengers uh, safe. So, Please, please, all of you, pay attention from the time you leave your house to go to the airport all the way through the end of your flight. And please fly safely. Thank you for checking out our show. We really value our listeners and subscribers. Our podcast gets ranked by you and how much you like it. So please give us five stars in your podcast platform. We want to keep in contact with you. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and of course, YouTube. You can email the show at flightsafetydetectives at gmail.com. By the way, if you're on YouTube, we're really working on growing the channel, and it helps if you all send in comments. Please do that, and we read all the comments. And be sure to subscribe. Remember, if you're in the market for aviation insurance, you can save 5% with Avemco just by mentioning our show. Visit them at www.avemco.com. That's it for this episode of the Flight Safety Detective. Until the next episode, fly safe.